0: Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of The Good Music Podcast. I'm Lucas. And I'm Justin. And uh, we are recording, I believe this is episode 12 now. Keep going. We just, we just keep going. Thank you to everyone that has been listening. Um, whatever platform that you're on, uh, just please hit that uh, subscribe button. Leave a comment. Leave a rating. And uh, we've got new episodes that come every Monday morning at 9 o'clock. And, um, the podcast
1: has been doing really, really well. You told me you had some new statistics you wanted to tell me.
0: Yes. Yeah, so in the week that it's been out, the Slipknot episode has become our third most listened to overall. Wow. That's 80, quick. 85 listens in one week. That's pretty good. Which is crazy. And, um. In one week? In one week. That like the best. It's it's the best I've had so far. It even beat out Coldplay and Metallica in their first week. Crazy. That it was actually about doubled it. I guess. I so mean, Slipknot's hot. Yeah, there's they're uh, they're a trending band right now. And then also uh, our Pink Floyd episode has only been out for one day, and it already has thirty listens.
1: That's pretty good.
0: <laughs> yeah, uh, it took the Slipknot episode about three days to get to 30, and Pink Floyd did it in one day. Mm. Well, see, Slipknot's mainstream now. Yeah. <laughs> but what I'm saying is, Pink Floyd's going to be even bigger. Yeah, I'm sure. And so... They're the hidden gem. Yeah, absolutely. So, I'm, I'm kind of starting to see a little bit of a spike in popularity. Um, the Fleetwood Mac episode's the one that's going to come out next. By the way, for those of you listening, we're about three episodes ahead, so... Um, we're kind of talking a little bit behind maybe what you're listening to right now.
1: I'm interested to see what people say about Fleetwood Mac you know, and yeah. respond to it.
0: Uh huh. So we've got two, our two most recent episodes being very, very popular that being Slipknot and Pink Floyd. So I'll be curious to see if that's because our listening base is growing or if it's particularly Slipknot and Pink Floyd are just resonating with people. So if I, I think if Fleetwood Mac and Nirvana <clears throat> get really big spikes as well, I think that'll be an indication that maybe we're just getting more listeners overall, which would be great.
1: Yeah. It'd be
0: awesome. Tears for Fears is also still doing really well. It's at about 75. It's ahead of Queen now. Wow. To be our four. It, it had the number three place for like a day and then <laughs> Slipknot jumped ahead.
1: How does it make you feel to go over Queen though?
0: You know, I understand it. While I am sad, first off, the Queen episode is not my best recorded episode. Is the first one I did. I can maybe understand people turning it on and maybe not wanting to listen to it all the way. I'm almost wondering if maybe doing a redo of it with, with you with me. Because I was just by myself when I recorded that'd that be fun. one. I think that be, could be cool. I mean, I know a little bit about Queen, but... Yeah. You know, just the hits. Mm-hmm. And, uh like i can see that i feel like maybe a little bit people are, are a little burnt out on queen just because we got blitzed by queen so hard at the end of last year and the beginning of this year yeah, with the movie and their songs being in like every commercial every movie it's true and i feel like that's we're finally now like died down from that like i'm not seeing it as much anymore so i think kind of people are like okay we're done let's move on which I will never be done with Queen. <laughs> but I can see in a. Like, if I had to release the Queen episode, like, in December. Yeah. I think that it probably would have gotten a lot more listens. Hmm. Which is why I'm going to try and be a little bit relevant with some of my picks to match up with stuff. Like, there is a very specific reason I did Slipknot when I did, it's because the new album. Was coming out and like.
1: And you picked one of the singles off of there.
0: Yeah. Uh huh. That was intentional. And till I kind of. Because I know that right now, Slipknot's at their biggest they've ever been right now. Top in the Billboard 200, third consecutive album. Um, They've had a long hiatus, so people were really rabid about them coming back. The new masks is always a big moment for Slipknot fans. And it just, it felt timely. So there's going to be times where it may seem random why I'm picking an artist, but it's it's going to be for a reason. I've got another one planned for not too long in the future that I'm doing because of the, um, the timing of it. So that's probably why Queen is not getting as many listens. It could also just be, again, the episode itself is fairly rough as far as um it's just me talking myself and I listening back on it I'm just like I'm tripping over my words a lot and like trying to figure out what to do I didn't map anything out I was just literally winging it and I could see that maybe not being as appealing for people to listen to so I'd be curious if we did a if we did a redo if that would do better that'd be a cool experiment maybe Same songs? Same songs, yeah. Cool. Hey and I'm we're going to return to Queen a lot. Yeah. Because, like, I would say they have 100 plus great songs that, to talk about. As far as. They've, they've got about 150 total songs. And I'd say 100 of those are high quality songs. It's kind of a lot. Yeah. Queen's great. They've got a lot of amazing deep cuts. Amazing. So. Um, We're going to go ahead and jump into the episode for this week. Um, So for those of you that may be tuning in for the first time, what this podcast is, is my intention of kind of taking you guys along a musical journey and introducing you guys hopefully to some great music that you've never listened to before, or maybe giving you some insight on some bands that you do like, and hopefully you learning something new. So my advice to you would be to not just tune into the episodes where you know who they are. I would recommend really tuning in to artists that you've never heard of before and artists that maybe are in genres that you don't normally like or listen to. It's all about being open-minded. And so I really... Uh, encourage you to um, kind of step out of your comfort zone a little bit and um, really listen to each episode. Whether What you do with that is obviously up to you, but give each episode a chance. You never know what you might get. Um, And Justin has, has been along on this journey with me, and it's been really fun to have someone to introduce a lot of new music to. And I think he's enjoying
1: it. Has been. I mean... I think almost every band we've done so far, I haven't really listened to very much, or I haven't really done much at all. Ex- case in point, this week's band that we're listening to, I never listened to in my life.
0: Which is just so crazy to me. But I mean, I, I think what's really opening my eyes the most about this podcast is how I think that everyone knows who a particular artist is. And then I'm finding that I'm wrong.
1: Well, they know of, but they don't really know.
0: Yeah. So this week we're talking about Genesis. And Genesis is a band that I have a lot of personal affection for. When growing up, I did not surprisingly not listen to much music. I didn't even really like music that much. That's interesting. I know. It's kind of really weird. And, like, when I... From ages, like, zero to 13, there's pretty much just two things I listened to. One was my dad's music. Yeah. And the second was the Star Wars soundtrack. (laughs) (laughs) That was it. I mean, that's not bad. With, like, occasionally one or two random things. Like, Weird Al or... um, Just, like, something like that. Yeah. And so... When I was, I was either, I think I was 14 actually, because I remember it was in eighth grade. And I remember it, I don't remember what month it was, but I remember it was cold. So it was probably like January or February of my eighth grade year. My dad came to me and was just like, son, I'm going to give you this hard drive. It's got all this great music on it. I'm going to make you listen to it. You are <laughs> not allowed to listen to any of the things that you normally listen to. And you're going to thank me for it later. And I was really mad that he did it. Because I was just like, I don't want to do this. I don't want to listen to all this dumb music.
1: Love of dad's music. Uh, yeah.
0: It wasn't even like I was into modern music. I was just like, I was like, I listen to Star Wars or I listen to nothing. <laughs> <laughs> and I was just like, okay. So he gave me this iPod. It had about a thousand songs or so on it. And it was just, it was a Random collection of, like, 70s through modern, which at that time was, like, 2006. Mm. And so I remember the first, there were three things that I started listening to first on that. One was Coldplay. um, One was Journey. And then the other was Genesis. Those were kind of the, the three artists on there that I gravitated to towards first. So Genesis for me, I whenever I listen to them, I always think back to that eighth grade winter and me just kind of going, like having my spiritual awakening.
1: <laughs> and what was it about Genesis that awoke your spirit?
0: I had just started learning how to play drums at that point. And so, mm. of, and I knew who Phil Collins was. Of course. Because I knew him as the Tarzan guy. Yeah because I loved that movie and I and that was one of the few things outside remember I said there was kind of random things yeah that soundtrack I listened to all the time and so I knew who Phil Collins was and I started listening to Genesis and I was like I know that voice that's and I was like I asked my dad I was like is is Phil Collins the singer of Genesis and he was like yeah and he's the drummer too And I was like, oh, so that's kind of like why I grabbed, I immediately, because it reminded me of something that I liked before. Yeah. And so that was kind of the first thing that pulled me in was that familiarity of, oh, I know his voice. I, I, I'm, I liked what he did on the Tarzan soundtrack, so I'm going to listen to this. And then just kind of over time, just really going, wow, great melodies, great, um, songwriting. Um, At first, I was like really enamored by the drums, and then I actually started listening to kind of more super talented drummers. Although, not to say that Phil Collins is not super talented. Mm -hmm. Right. He absolutely is. And in their first era, he really shows himself off as an incredible drummer. But for the era where he was the front man, he simplified his drumming a lot. But for an intro drummer like me at the time just hearing someone just like that i knew that played drums it just it fascinated me and so that was why genesis kind of i have a special place in my heart for them cuz it just reminds me of that time when i finally realized mm-hmm. that i loved music and they're another english band yep another <laughs> english england's got all the best bands so crazy
1: yeah I think one of the things that I really enjoyed about Genesis, I mean, I've told you before, like, I usually listen to the music first, always. It's always Mm -hmm. what gets me. But they, Genesis, just, it almost seems like, like, through and through, they're just great songwriters. Oh, yeah. Like, all of the guys, especially the four four main guys, or the... The three main guys. The three main guys. I mean, just incredible songwriters. Oh, yeah.
0: And it didn't always, it wasn't always that way. So a little bit of the history of Genesis. They formed in the late 60s. First album came out in 69. And when they started off, they were a five piece. And um, Peter Gabriel was their lead singer starting out. And most of the, three of the, Uh, core members were there so Peter Gabriel Mike Rutherford who was the bassist and uh, Tony Banks was the keyboard player and eventually Peter Gabriel would leave but Mike Rutherford and Tony Banks were always the 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 remaining members they were on everything that Genesis ever released yeah they were only two members to do so and then um, their second album came out and that's when they got Phil Collins on drums And Steve Hackett on guitar. And that's kind of when they really started to figure out what their sound was. So this was about 1970. And the early 70s was the beginning of the progressive rock movement. That's right. So prog rock is something that eventually we're going to get to. Um, It is not for the faint of heart musically. (laughs) Although there are great stepping stones. We're going to... We'll get into prog rock at some point because it's one of my all-time favorite genres. But they were able to fit into that scene and ended up becoming one of the big leaders of it, along with Yes and uh, Emerson, Lincoln, and Palmer. And so once they made the Foxtrot album, which is a great, great album, it's kind of like when they finally started to, Gained this really strong cult following. And they were known as just this crazy cult band. Um, And Peter Gabriel was really making a name for himself for being this lunatic on stage. He always was wearing these elaborate costumes and face makeup. And putting on all these theatrical performances. That's kind of what got
1: them on the map though, isn't it? Uh Uh-huh.
0: Because everyone started to... Noticed Peter Gabriel. Yeah. And started to go, whoa, look at him. And the other band members were starting to not like it a little bit. Because <laughs> they felt that a lot of people were coming to their shows just to see what Peter would do rather than listen to them. Yeah. And so they made two more albums with him. Both of them great, great records. And then Peter Gabriel decided he wanted to move on. He wanted to take a break. Wanted to concentrate on his family. And... Um, When that happened, Genesis didn't know how they would continue because their popularity up to that point had been because of Peter Gabriel. And so they went on a long search to figure out their replacement singer. Went through hundreds of singers.
1: But not just for a singer. I mean, Peter wrote a lot of the music.
0: He didn't write... He wrote a lot of the lyrics. Yeah. But the music was collaborative with the band and that was kind of gotcha. something that they wanted to debunk was just like peter didn't wasn't the sole creative and that's kind of what was the the rumor that was going yeah. on just like oh they can't survive without peter because he made all the music and they're like no that's not true he was an important part he did most of the lyrics he came up with a lot of the themes and but they were all writing music and so um they were just like, we well, got to figure out who it's going to be. And just every single person they auditioned just wasn't right. And when Phil Collins was the drummer, he was also the background vocalist. So he was doing a lot of the harmonies. He even sings lead on one of the songs on Selling England by the Pound. Yep. And they kind of just like looked to him and was just like, well, because he was like telling the singers that were auditioning like how to sing their parts. He would like show them what to do and. And I was just like, well, you you're singing better than all these people that are coming in. <laughs> and he and Phil was just originally like, no, I don't want to, you know, I want to just be behind the kid. I don't want to be a front man. I don't look like a front man. I'm short, I'm yeah. balding, you know, I don't look like this I don't look like Peter Gabriel, who was this very um fascinating person to look at. And when the, they just couldn't fight the right singer, he was just like, Okay, fine, I'll try it. And that's when they released Trick of the Tail, and uh, Wind and Wuthering, and both of those albums were very, very big successes as far as the UK charts. They weren't doing a single thing in America. America did not care for the prog rock scene of the early '70s. England did, and Europe did. Um, and so those albums did as well as their previous Peter Gabriel. Albums did. So that's when they were kinda like, okay, we can do this. We can get by without Peter Gabriel. Um, but Phil Collins was thinking that his time as a lead vocalist would just be temporary. And he was just like, I'll sing for now until we find the right guy. Little did he know. That he would just be the (laughs) guy. And he would help define the sound of uh, the eighties. Because at this point he wasn't writing yet. Yeah. It was mainly Mike Rutherford and Tony Banks that were writing.
1: Both incredible songwriters in their own
0: right. Absolutely. And so after Wind and Wuthering, Steve Hackett, their guitarist, left. And so then they released the aptly titled album, and then there were three. Yep. And that's that album was the first true beginning of the second era of Genesis. Even though Phil Collins had done two albums after, they're still part of their progressive prog rock era, because they're not pop records at all. They're complicated, uh, very artistic, musical albums. But once you get to end there, then there are three, because they only have three guys left. So Mike Rutherford in the studio was pulling both guitar and bass duty.
1: So you're saying because they got so few... They had to change up their their sound a little.
0: That, and it was just... It was the music that they were wanting to write at that point. They just... They themselves were getting tired of that. And also, the prog rock scene had just about died at that point. Punk rock did a fine job of killing it. <laughs> yes was down. Um, Amateur Lake and Palmer were done. King Crimson was on hiatus. All of these seminal prog rock groups had pretty much fallen off. The only... Real prog rock group at that time was Rush, but they were kind of had already changed how prog rock sounds and feels, and Genesis knew they didn't fit in with that. Yeah, and so it was kind of like adapt or die at that point. If they kept making prog rock albums, they just would have been dinosaurs, and they would have been, you know, their sales would have gone down because prog rock in general was not popular. I would say Pink Floyd is the only other one that was able to continue doing, but it's because they were so unique and so different that they could get away with it. And they were so big. Um, So it was just kind of like they needed to, they needed to figure out their new spot. And it did help that, you know, personnel changes forced them to have to make that decision. And, but they took a break after, and then there were three. Um, Phil Collins' marriage was falling apart. And so he moved to Vancouver to try and salvage his marriage. It didn't work. And as a result of that, he wrote a lot of personal songs about it. And that ended up being his first solo album that came out in 1980. And that first solo album had In the Air Tonight, which is the ultimate song you associate Phil Collins with. Of course. And when that got big, it was kind of like all of a sudden now Phil is this great songwriter and knows how to write pop music and pop music like that song shaped what 80s pop music would sound like sure and so now all of a sudden Genesis knew what to do and they just started going across that angle but the cool thing about Genesis and what separated them from Phil Collins' solo work Phil Collins wrote pure pop music when he was solo with Genesis, there was still that expert musicianship and songwriting. Like, even though the hits were had great hooks, were usually pretty ordinarily structured, there's so many details and so many intricacies hidden throughout Genesis stuff that Phil Collins wasn't doing in his solo career. Um, the way Mike Rutherford put it is that, like, Their songs seemed simple on the outside, but when you really actually looked at it, they were a lot more complicated than what it led on. A lot of strange chords, a Mm -hmm. lot of odd time signatures. Um, Genesis was a prog band disguised as a pop group. So they were still getting to flex those prog rock muscles. But they were then able to access a much wider audience. They said that at that point now they were finally seeing women in their audiences. Because yeah.
1: their audience was all male. I did notice that, I mean, a lot of the songs, especially on this list, still like have kind of a rock edge mm-hmm. to it. But just dressed up with pop lyrics.
0: Yeah. And so, I mean, there's, there's a lot of people that hated the direction Genesis went in the 80s saying that they sold out yeah. that you know they weren't real musicians anymore that they weren't writing real music um, that they just wanted to get more fans and get more money which I don't see what the problem is with that <laughs> um, But they had to survive yeah absolutely I mean they would be on this where would they now call them had they not done this and Far fewer people would have discovered the Peter Gabriel era albums had the Phil Collins era not gotten as big as it did. Yeah. It would have been something you really, you would have been like, who's Genesis? Who's Phil Collins? Who's blah, 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 blah. I love both eras almost equally. I'm a little more liking of the Phil Collins era. But that's more for nostalgic purposes because I didn't get into the Peter Gabriel era until much 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 later so and it's had less time to sit with me
1: and that shows with this list for this week
0: yes so if you've never listened to Genesis before you have to start with the Phil Collins era because you it's you would be scared off if you listen to the Peter Gabriel era first <laughs> Especially if you're coming along this journey like Justin is that doesn't know a lot about the other styles and, and groups that have gone on. You would listen to Peter Gabriel Genesis and go, well, I'm never listening to that again. We'll get there at some point, but not yet. We're going to work our way up there. Um, and just, it was my introduction. And it was the reason why I gave the Peter Gabriel era a chance because I loved the Phil Collins era so mm. much. And so that's why I wanted to do it that way. And so, yeah, they got very, very big in the 80s and then broke up in the 90s, did a massive reunion tour in the late 2000s. And right. we haven't heard anything from them since. But they're supposedly still together. Yeah, there's, there's been rumors for a while. That they might get back together. Because Phil Collins just came out of retirement. That's right. He hadn't done anything for like six or seven years. And he just is about to start his Not Dead Yet tour, which I almost got tickets for, for the Dallas show. And I wasn't able to get there. Although my mom is going and I'm really angry about it. (laughs) (laughs) But because the fact, because the the person that was stopping them from reuniting is Phil, because yeah. he's he says his arthritis is really bad, he can't drum anymore. His voice is not what it used to be because he's you know he's in his seventies now. I think Isn't that he's crazy. In his, I think he's in his seventies. I'd have to fact check that. Um, but he's kind of the one that's putting it on hold, and so now that he's back for a solo career. Now, kind of the question is okay, now can we get one more Genesis tour? And then, of course, the, the biggest question is would we ever get a tour with Peter Gabriel back? Yeah. Which I don't, at this point, I don't think it can happen. What Phil would have to do on the drums, I think, would be too difficult because he was a maniac drummer in the Peter Gabriel era. Like, when I hearing the Peter Gabriel era made me realize how great of a drummer Phil Collins was and that how much he was intentionally scaling back when he became a frontman. It's easy to think that he was maybe an, a moderately good drummer when you just listen to the Phil Collins era, but when you listen to the Peter Gabriel era, you realize he's one of the greatest of all time and he's intentionally scaling back what he can do. To play what the song needs, yeah, and that made me respect him as a drummer so much more.
1: Which I think is one of the things that I, I think I appreciated about Genesis is that, especially when they got down to the three, they you can tell they really simplified a lot of their musical playing, but they made up for it by utilizing a ton of different tools to cover different bases. I mean, they Mm -hmm. used a variety of sounds. stomp boxes, amps, and it just kind of really helped, like, fill the void of that, of having only three people, which is kind yeah. of amazing.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, they definitely pioneered a lot of 80s sounds, especially, I would say, drums, most of all. Phil Collins, the thing he always made sure was that you would have a great drum track, and he was really good at getting a lot of different sounding drums. His drums did not sound the same from song-to-song, he was always trying to do something different, and became a master at program drums and um, electronic drum sounds, just like dialing in himself all of these sounds to get exactly what he wanted, and we owe pretty much how 80s drums sound to Phil Collins and Genesis, so yeah, so when we come back... We're going to talk about uh, the songs for this episode, so uh, stay tuned, and we'll be right back. All right, welcome back to the Good Music Podcast. We are talking about Genesis. Specifically, we're going to be uh, getting into the Phil Collins era of Genesis. So this is the era spanning from about 76 to uh, 97. Although we're not going to get songs as far as that, but that's, that's what the Phil Collins era spans. So um, for those of you listening for the first time, what we do on every episode is... Um, We pick six songs, typically, to talk about. And what these songs are is the the best songs if you're stepping into this band for the first time. Um, But not only that, but songs that when you listen to them from start to finish, there's an emotional arc. And so I am very, very particular about not only getting great songs to start off and to kind of show multiple sides of the band, but also like having a great starting point and then ending at a very specific point, and then trying to figure out how to connect those dots. So um, these songs are available on my Spotify playlist. The way to find that playlist is in the description of this episode. Um, I would really highly recommend, don't just listen to this episode on its own. Even if you've heard these songs before, go listen to them again either before or after listening to this episode. Um, I'm hoping that sequencing them in the way that they are, that you will get something new out of it, even if you've heard these songs before. And so, um, yeah, so this is not necessarily the six best songs, the six most popular songs. Um, These are just six songs that I feel are a great introduction to the band, as well as songs that fit together and take you from point A to point B. Um, And with that, let's go ahead and jump into the first song, which is, Justin? Turn it on again. Turn it on again. So... What a crazy song. Yeah, so (laughs) it's amazing to me that this song wasn't an album opener, Cause it feels like
1: such a great opening song. There's so many things happening in this song. Mm-hmm. So many time signature changes, and it almost kind of feels like even just listening to the lyrics, like it almost kind of feels like they're bits and pieces, like just that they just came up with and like stuck together.
0: Well, that's it's funny you should say that because that's pretty much how the song was written. Interesting. So. The, the parts that comprised the song were meant to be part of a big medley that was supposed to close the album. But when they were writing these bits, they decided, well, this, this, these could be put together and made their own song. And so that's what they did.
1: Interesting you said that. Are you saying that um, each of the band members normally just kind of wrote their own thing like on the side? Or? Not
0: necessarily, no. They, would, they actually all came together and just jammed. And then kind of once they had somewhat of an idea, then like someone would go off and write lyrics and they would kind of like figure out where it goes after that. But all the initial parts typically came while they were together in the studio jam. So they
1: would record a jam Mm -hmm. and then figure out what they want to do and then re-record what they just did. Yeah. That's pretty cool.
0: Yeah. So they would kind of refine and polish and, you know, then start figuring out, okay, how do we want the keyboards to sound? What kind of drum sounds do we want to use? Um, what lyrics are we going to put to this? The music always usually came first, mm. and so that's how this song came together. And how most Phil Collins era Genesis songs came about was just an idea sparks while they're jamming together, or they hear someone else just kind of playing something. They go, oh wait, hold on, what was that? Okay, let's work on that. Yeah, let's let's see if we can turn this into a song. And so, yeah, so that's what "Turn It On Again" was. It was a couple of different ideas that were meant for something else. And they kind of realized, mm, actually, this should be its own song. This is really good. Mm-hmm. We, need to, we need to take this apart from what we were trying to make and make something new.
1: I think this song kind of really encapsulates like who Genesis was musically. Just mm-hmm. kind of like a little bit of everything, sometimes a little bit all over the place, but it works. Yeah. Um, I really
0: think that this song perfectly demonstrates the balance of Genesis, yeah. Where on one side you have this pop songwriting, and on the other side this prog um, experimentation, because the song again has it's an alternating of six eight and seven eight time signature, which is like what pop song does that? Yeah, that's crazy. And but you almost don't even notice it because the riff, the way the riff is written, it fits it so
1: well. Yeah. Even like I really love the. The change in the melody with the breakdown, mm-hmm. like I mean, it's just such a subtle change, but like it's just a great transition into getting them in and out of all these time signatures. Yeah, and it just flows.
0: Yeah, when it kind of gets a little um, ominous yeah. on the breakdowns, but then it just goes right back in. Um, yeah, it's it's amazing, and that for me, that's those are the best songwriters. We've talked about this before, like with Tears for Fears, the ones that can take simple hooks but then find really interesting ways to express those hooks it's not just a four four um it's not just your you know four chord progression you know like yeah six five four one you know kind of how like most pop music and country music and worship music is written there's like a lot of a lot of hidden complexity yeah. In and they just added hitting. all
1: these little wrinkles that just kind of made it so, like, not like a huge, like, you know, pull from the rug, but just enough that we're like, oh, that's that's cool. Like, that's different. I mm-hmm. wasn't expecting that.
0: Yeah. And yeah. So this song wasn't really much of a hit for it when it came out, but it's kind of like, as time has gone on, this has become one of their signature songs. They even named their greatest hits compilation after this song, called Turn It On Again, the hits, and it's the song that opens that greatest hits. <laughs> and it was it was one of the first Genesis songs that I ever heard. I, I don't, I can't remember if it was the first one. It might have been. If I'm thinking, but this was, what, like 13 years ago? So I can't remember quite, because I remember it didn't strike me as much on the first listen. But it might have been and so, then, what a great way to start off this list with the song that potentially introduced me to the band. And
1: then that takes us to song number two. That's all. That's all.
0: So that's all is on their 1983 self-titled album. So let me let me do the math on here. So one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. Nine, ten, eleven, twelve 12 albums into their career, they do a self-titled album. And usually in music, whenever you have a band that does a self-titled album that's not the first album, then it means that they're making a grand declaration that they've just reinvented themselves. Hmm. This is not the first album of their pop era. But... It's kind of the it's the album where they really leave behind a lot of the experimentation yeah. that they were using. Although there is still some experimentation. There's some really wacky stuff on Genesis' self-titled album. But it's definitely kind of like the there's a there's a definite line between the previous album Abicab, which had a lot of experimental stuff on it, and Genesis. So that's just something also to keep in mind. If ever you're following a band and in, in well into their career, they release a self-titled album, that's what that usually means. It means, okay, this is the beginning of a new era. It's what Fleetwood Mac did on the first album with that's Buckingham right. and Nix. It's what Metallica did whenever they um, abandoned their thrash roots and wrote Inner Sandman. That was a self-titled album. That's... Mm what the beatles did when they wrote the white album is just there's it's usually meant as a statement of going okay it's almost like this is our new beginning it's our new debut album
1: speaking of the beatles this song sounds very beatles-esque
0: yes yes it does so
1: what what were your thoughts on that's all uh it's very poppy i mean but still kind of has an edge to it Mm -hmm. um Especially with that organ solo in the middle there, but um, it just kind of feels like a Beatles song. It's just I wrote down like it's just kind of a head bopper, mm-hmm. like just something. Just having listened to a little bit of the what Peter Gabriel stuff that they did, like it's you could start to see the change, even though there's still some elements of what they were doing beforehand.
0: Mm-hmm. So the uh, the drum track for the song was actually. Lifted straight from a Beatles song. Interesting. Um, one of their really obscure songs, though, a song called "Rocky Raccoon," which <laughs> is a really, really strange song off of the White album. Um, but that's what he said in an interview. It's just like I, I channeled um, the way that the drums were on "Rocky Raccoon" to kind of give it that bouncy, um, springy feel to it. That's kind of almost, um, almost like country. Saloon, because that's kind of like you know the piano line is very, um, almost very, country western a
1: little bit. Yeah,
0: and then a really aggressive vocal performance. Yeah, very aggressive.
1: Something that I wasn't, or something that reminded me of why I really like Phil Collins' vocals, just because of I mean it kind of showcases his talent and just his Mm -hmm. versatility and and what he could do.
0: Yeah, I love the um, the comparison of you know when he's singing about because this whole song's about being in a relationship that you know is bad for you but you just can't seem to let that person go and the parts where he's singing about what he can't do is much softer when he's saying um i want to leave but i won't go it'd be easier if i did It'd be easier, I know. He's kind of singing a little bit more subdued or saying, truth is, I love you more than I wanted to. There's no point in trying to pretend. That's when he's soft. But then when he's talking about the things that he knows is wrong about the relationship, that's when he puts the snarl in there. Very Nirvana-esque. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) Um, I know that this is the the kind of stuff that Kurt Cobain was probably listening to. And that he didn't want to admit to the grunge underground because he would have lost his credibility. I
1: think in a way, musically, it kind of, you know, really helps you focus in on, you know, typically music, like the chorus is the hook. And, you know, I think something that Phil Collins, I think not just Phil Collins, but Genesis and a lot of bands, and I think that really kind of pushed it onto Kurt Cobain. is just how the verses of a song became important again. Mm-hmm. Absolutely.
0: And then it's something we'll get into a little bit later, um, but I'll say a little bit about it now. One of my favorite songwriting strengths that Phil Collins had that I feel like not very many people use is how great of a bridge writer he is. Yeah. So like the bridge being kind of on a lot of songs, the bridge is like the worst part of a song. It's kind of like the part where we need to do something else. Yeah. It's just to to break up the monotony of verse chorus. Yeah. But it doesn't have any, um, usually has
1: a minor chord in there just for kicks.
0: Yeah. Phil Collins always had a way of making the bridge the most important part of the song. Um, and we'll get into an example of that once we get later into the song list. But yeah, that's all is was a big stepping stone for them. It was one of their it was at up to that point their best charting single in the US. It was kind of the song that finally started to get them known in America and finally breaking away from just being big in Europe and other parts of the world.
1: Was this a song that broke them into the top one hundred in the billboard?
0: They had been in the top one hundred before. Okay. It's what b- broke them into the top ten. Gotcha. It wasn't number one, but it finally got them into the top ten
1: yeah. Spot. And you could easily see why, I mean Yeah. The Beatles just feel. Mm-hmm. I'm sure the Americans loved it. Eighty three was the best year
0: for that song to come out. Yeah. So, it fit in with a lot of other songs that were big at that point. When when the decade hadn't gone full 80s yet, and something that's more stripped down and bare but still pop, could yeah.
1: really do well. So, speaking of evolution, this next song, Throw It All Away, again, highlights even more of an evolution that Genesis goes yes. through. Yes.
0: This is my favorite Genesis song. I can see why. And, um... I just, I love, love, love the simplicity of this song. It's a great ballad. Yeah. Without being ballady. Yeah, it's not sappy. It's not like it, super cheesy. It's not layered in tons of keyboards. And mm-hmm. um, so yeah, this is off the Invisible Touch album. This is the biggest that Genesis ever got. 1986, Invisible Touch record. That This is the album that finally got them in that number one spot that they had been working towards for almost 20 years at that point. Crazy. They finally made it to the, the biggest of the big with the invisible touch album and, um, throwing it all away is one of the best songs on that album. if not the best song on that album. In my opinion,
1: I really love the guitar work here on on this song. I mean, I think, um, let's see. Uh, was Rutherford playing lead at this point? Yes. Yeah. He had,
0: he started playing lead once Hackett left in 77.
1: Yeah, I feel like he just does such a great job on, on this song. Mm-hmm.
0: Even even before, his bass playing was very melodic. He didn't play like a bass player. You mm-hmm. could tell that he was a guitar player first and then became a bass player because they needed a bass player. And like he didn't have to learn how to be a guitar player once he had to step into that role.
1: And He was the rhythm player for a while. For a long time, and the bass player for a long time, wasn't
0: Yeah, playing. so he well, no, because Hackett was really very much a, a guitar auteur. Gotcha. So he was like he was very much like a Steve Howe type person where he's coming up with a lot of zany ideas for guitar and wanting to do a lot of stuff himself. But and just Rutherford, he but I mean his bass playing was almost like rhythm guitar playing. Yeah. Like you listen to a lot of Rutherford's bass playing, even in the Phil Collins era Genesis, it's not just matching kick drum, playing chords. He's
1: really carrying a lot of the rhythm.
0: Yes. And he's putting a lot of melodic emphasis in his playing. Yeah. And so that made it such a great transition when he became both, is that he didn't have this growing pain of trying to figure out how to be the guitar player, too. He was already a great guitar player. And yeah, this track absolutely showcases his his tasteful
1: guitar playing. I think the other interesting thing about this song is that just hearing how Phil sings this, like when I think of a Phil Collins song, this is a Phil Collins song. Absolutely, it's so similar to this song. At least is, to me, is so similar to a lot of what you would probably find on some of his solo work.
0: Yeah, this songs like these really were the ones that. People hung their hats on saying that Phil Collins had taken over Genesis and was mm. just making it sound like a solo work. But at the same time, a song like this just won't be on a Phil Collins solo album. No. It's too good. I'm not saying that Phil Collins' solo work is bad. I love it. I absolutely love it, but it's different. It's It sounds similar to people that aren't paying attention but because they're both pop. So people think, oh, Phil Collins is pop. Now Genesis is pop. They're the same thing. They're not. Yeah. They're absolutely not. There are just... There's just details in... Um, in this song that aren't going to be as present in Phil Collins because Phil isn't the sole person responsible for putting everything together. A lot of the early Phil Collins albums, he did mostly by himself. He brought in people to you know play horn sections and stuff that he can't do, but as far as... You know, guitar, drums, vocals. He did most of it himself. Yeah. And so that means that he, everything had to come from him. When you have Rutherford and Banks also contributing their yeah. ideas. There's a level of polish there. Mm-hmm. And Phil Collins was so good at writing, like, screw you love songs. <laughs> if you haven't already, didn't already pick yes. up on that song. Throwing it all yeah. away is literally, like, uh, you know, uh, um Like, and I told you so. Yeah. Like, pretty much telling you, you had the best that you could have, and you threw it all away. And
1: I think these are the kind of songs that really started to speak to their female listeners a lot.
0: Uh Uh-huh. I love the lyric in this song, um, um, late at night when you call my name, the only sound you'll hear is your voice calling out to me. (laughs) Just like, like even saying, like, not even saying, if you call for me, I'll come back to you. Like, if you call for me, you're... Out of luck, because I ain't coming. <laughs> You're on your own now. I'm not looking back. And then, man, I love the fact that the chorus doesn't even have words to it. Yeah. And yet it's so good. It's so catchy. Yeah. Um, Just, like, it takes incredible skill to write a great pop chorus that has no words to it. Yep. And again, the bridge or the pre-chorus. In this case, I'm going to put the pre-chorus in the bridge. Like, written so good. That could be in some other writer's hands. That part of the song could be like throwaway and just like, we need something to do before we get to the chorus. That's like the emotional core of the song right there. When the keys swell and everything like opens it up and he's saying, just throwing it all away. So good. It's so good. I love this song so much. (laughs) (laughs)
1: well it's fitting that that is your favorite song because our next song on this list follow you follow me is my favorite song ooh
0: okay so
1: I lied it's the next song oh okay but I still did really like this song okay especially the so on Follow You Follow Me there's this great synth line. Oh yeah, that, that just that's... follows the melody of the vocals mm-hmm. all around, especially in the chorus, and it's so nice. Oh yeah. And then that keyboard solo in the middle.
0: You can this is this is the the only thing that can happen when you have a prog rock group making a pop song. That's right. Cuz that that's totally a prog rock keyboard line right there. Yeah. Like, but normally in a prog rock song, that would be like, and <laughs> there'd be all these crazy
1: stuff going on back. But just slowing it down, just mm-hmm. adds so much emotion to it. Yep. And I think what I really liked about the song is that it's, it kind of shows how they weren't afraid to experiment even with even when it was just still like the three of them. and mm-hmm. And even in this, at this stage of their career, like it kind of, it was something different than they like just in at the time like something different from what they were doing already.
0: Yeah, it was their so this was the this was the song that started them going down this path because this is the this was the final song on the and then there were three so this was their first album as a trio and this was their first hit. They had had two minor minor hits in the Peter Gabriel era with I know what I like in your wardrobe and Carpet Crawlers. But they didn't do much on the charts, but, like, they became kind of, like, underground hits. Yeah. This was their first UK song to crack the top ten. Not not in the U.S. It didn't do anything in the U.S. yet, but, like, it was kind of, like, in Europe, it was, like, that first moment where they're, like, okay, we now are starting to go to another level. And Mike Rutherford was saying that, like, they wrote the song and, like, 10 and 15 minutes and he was just like he was like doubting himself just like it can't be this easy <laughs> it's like it shouldn't be this easy and then and then i was kind of what struck him out i was just like it is easy and that's what i like about it yeah and it was their it was their first love song or at least true love song that they'd ever mm. written like they had written about love before but it was always like really high concept like abstract yeah or, like, in the middle of this weird, strange story that they were telling. Like, it wasn't ever just a pure, I love you, you love me, we'll yeah. be a happy family.
1: But similar to what you said before, like, this song sounds deceptively simple, and yet mm-hmm. there's some really, like, sophisticated things about it. Like, the verse chorus, which is, to me, I mean, it's, I think it's one of my favorite things in music is when you can pull something off like that. Like... yeah. Where the chorus isn't just like this, you know, bouncy little thing. which just like, there's like with really like intentional or not intentional, but, um, it just kind of just like flowy mm-hmm. lyrics with the end. This one just kind of like, you, you can
0: you, you don't, you don't, there's not like a line where here's the verse, now yeah. there's the chorus. It's, it's the melody. That's the logical conclusion of where it right. should go.
1: And I love, and I think that's what I love so much about this song is that it—that's what makes this song so interesting for me.
0: Yeah, yeah. This song was very, very important for the band. This was the moment when they—they they finally started moving towards becoming a band that people uh, found mass appeal in. And so, the way that I'm structuring this flow now with these songs is, you know, we start off strong with "Turn It On Again." We keep the momentum going with that All. We lay it back a little bit with Throwing It All Away. Kind of keep a bit of that mellowiness with Follow You, Follow Me. It's, it's chill. It's not in your face. Yeah. But now we're going to ramp it back up again.
1: And this is my favorite song on this list.
0: Yes. And probably this is going to be the one song on here that's not a hit. And I kind of like to do this a little bit where, you know, if we're introducing... Someone to an artist, it's like, let's get five well-known songs, but then let's throw in one that you wouldn't normally hear. It's so crazy to me that
1: this song was not a hit. Yeah. Just a job to do.
0: Mm-hmm. It's,
1: it really is crazy. I'm... It's such a great song. Absolutely, yeah. I didn't hear this song
0: until I listened to that full album. And that, that al- the self-titled Genesis album is really good. There's some great, obviously, That's All is a great song. Um, we talked about that one mama is what a freaking song that is (laughs) it's a wild song Yes.
1: Um, so many different sounds
0: yeah Um, home by the sea is a great song on that album Uh, and um, but when just a job to do comes on it's just kind of like whoa where did this song come from it's kind of
1: a little bit of a throwback
0: yeah it's it's got a lot of um it's got a lot of fast, complex parts. Like I love I love the bass playing in this yeah. song.
1: I just love how aggressive this song like every part in the song is aggressive. Yeah. All the instrumentation. Phil's vocals is super aggressive on this, which I really love. Aggressive lyrics. The aggressive lyrics, yeah. And and that, even just like with the horns, I love the breakdown there Da da yeah it's just such a great and I love the pacing of it It's just mm-hmm. it's so fun, especially and I think listening when I was listening through this list, a great change like coming out of those two slower songs,
0: yeah, it was just at this point, what I wanted to do is I wanted to bring the energy back a little bit, but I wanted to bring it back in a in a darker, edgier way because it's gonna set us up great for our last song um but yeah, it's amazing that. A Job To Do, or Just A Job To Do, didn't get more. It's one of those songs that now it's being kind of put on some rock radio play. And I've read a lot of articles kind of talking about how Just A Job To Do is maybe their most underrated song. Yeah. And that it's kind of was a hidden gem for a really long time.
1: That album apparently is, I read when i was just kind of looking through these songs is that is at least at least it's mike rutherford's favorite album at least according to him
0: i can see why it's one of their it's one of the best of the phil collins era I'm, invisible touch is my favorite just because literally every song except for one is top tier on that album um but yeah uh self-titled genesis record is really really strong the only thing that sets it around is that illegal alien is one of the worst songs (laughs) but yeah the lyrics the lyrics are just so dark for a pop song and pop group just like writing about a hitman is saying like (laughs) i know where you live and i'm gonna find you. you better not fall asleep because i'm coming to get you right and it's just like you know People just always assumed that Genesis was just this sugary like love song, yeah. like oh you know just write stuff that's safe for radio, yay. And it's just like no, they wrote some really dark songs. Uh, Mama is a really dark song, and Domino from the Invisible Touch album, really dark song. And Phil Collins had a lot of a lot of angst in him that he really let out in his songwriting, and. I just think that this is a really unsung song that I wanted to give more attention to because it's a song that really needs to be listened to. It's a great, great song.
1: Yeah, for sure. So that takes us to our last song on this list, minus the bonus, of course. Yes. Tonight, Tonight, Tonight. Tonight, Tonight, Tonight. Classic 80s sound.
0: Oh, yes. This is such an 80s sounding song. And it... Parts of it can be dated, but it's like I don't care at the same time. And it's so long. Yes. <laughs> so there was a single version, and so there's, this is this is um, a uh, this was a situation where I wanted to put the album version because it is longer. Yeah. Um, they released the song as a single and cut it in half, pretty much. Took out the entire middle section where it's just a lot of yeah. weird drum sounds and cymbals and keyboards and stuff. And they edited a lot of the ending portion of the song. Like when he comes in with that bridge that you mm-hmm. keep telling me you're gonna help me. When he does that, get me out of here. It goes yeah. into the last chorus right there. Tonight. Uh, it yeah. cuts out that last verse. and But I love the longer version more. I feel like it
1: it takes its time more and really builds the tension. Yeah, I think the instrumental in in the middle which they cut out for the radio, I think it is really interesting. Yeah. There's some, just with the element of experimentation and the different sounds, I mean, it is, it's funny if I, only because I, this is my first time listening through Genesis, but I would not have expected that, um, having listened through these other songs that were on the list.
0: And that's also a very deliberate move that I wanted to make. I wanted this last song to kind of almost be a bit of a surprise. Especially if you didn't know about their progressive past That you would hear this and go, wait, okay So this isn't just a pop song They're like really experimenting here And
1: and exploring the space musically, if you will I think what I like about this song is that It starts off, you think think, Oh, this is just another Phil Collins song Mm -hmm. But then as the song goes on You're just like, oh, this is something Phil would never have done on his own solo work Yeah For sure
0: Again, and we were just talking about a dark song. This is another dark song.
1: Yeah, it is a dark
0: song. <laughs> so this song is about a druggie like anticipating getting his next fix from his drug dealer. Awesome. And so he's just like, "You know, this is the night tonight i'm gonna I'm gonna feel better, but I'm like, I'm like dying right now until I go get it. And I know that this is the worst thing in the world that I can do. But I have to have it, and tonight, 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 I'm gonna make it right. I'm gonna make my, I'm gonna make everything feel right. My head's gonna be right. My body's gonna feel right. That's all I care about. What great writing! Yeah, because for the longest time, I thought it was about a relationship. <laughs> like he did a really good job of, um, of putting the ambiguity in there. Yeah, and that's something I really love about lyrics. Like you could. I don't always like when people spell out what something's about because it's like sometimes it can mean something different to other people. Um, It can, you know, you can hear something and you can go, I can tell you what it means to me. And when you say the meaning, it kind of almost takes away the mystery. And there have been artists over the years that have refused to say what their song's about. You know, I love the fact that no one in the world knows what Bohemian Rhapsody is about. <laughs> right. Not even the other band members know. Freddie Mercury was the only person that knew what that song was actually about, and that just adds to the mystique and the fun and the mystery of it. Is kind of like everyone has their own interpretation of what they think the song means, and, and it makes it
1: very personal. And it's such a fun song. Oh yeah.
0: <laughs> um, but yeah, just I think that this is such great songwriting that you can write about. Something like uh, drug addiction, and you can make it to where it can apply to s- yeah. different things,
1: and you can have an entire stadium yelling
0: that out. <laughs> uh huh. And it became the way it became a hit was it got used on a on a beer commercial.
1: Yeah, <laughs> and it's just like <laughs> so fitting.
0: Yeah, and and so then because they were they, they were saying like had they had that not happened that it probably just would have been an album deep cut that they would have never released, and then when it got put on there, it's like well. Everyone's hearing the song now. Let's figure out how to make this a uh, single and put it on the radio. And it ended up being one of the biggest hits on the album. Crazy. But, so, I was talking earlier about Phil Collins' amazing bridge writing. This is one of his best examples. when he, Yeah. When that whole instrumental section is happening and the tension's building, the drums are, the, he's hitting the snare sooner and sooner, and it's like you could tell the song's leading up to something. He comes in with that bridge and he's singing aggressively. You're just like it just sends chills down you. And he hits that big just get me out of here. That's just like Yes. Yeah. Jesus take me now.
1: (laughs) I think that's one of the beautiful things that I like that I love about Phil Collins, just with him singing lead vocals and playing drums, like Mm -hmm. he really I think drums more than anything. It's so easy to show that, and you can feel that kind of emotion in like while that's happening, like while you're singing and just smashing the drums. Like when you feel that mm-hmm. that emotion, yeah, and Phil just of course does such a great job. Mm-hmm. So
0: what I like to talk about in every set is that I want every set to end with a catharsis moment, the moment where all the emotions you've been feeling throughout this set come kind of exploding right at the end. Sometimes I like to do it in the second to last song depending like kind of how we did with the Fleetwood Mac list where our catharsis moment was that ending solo in go your own way and then we had like almost an epilogue right there at the end. Yeah. Um, in this instance that last chorus kicking in the second time he sings um, someone get me out of here won't you just help get me out of here and that last chorus hits. That's the moment the guitar solo comes in at the end. That's that's the catharsis moment that I wanted to build towards. And it influenced what songs get picked. So, again, don't complain that I left out your favorite <laughs> Genesis song. There's a very meticulous, specific reason these songs get selected in the order that they get put in. But, I would very much like to know, leave a comment, what genesis song would you like to see when we return because we will come back to genesis someday they still have so many great songs not only will we take a look at the peter gabriel gabriel era but we're gonna delve deeper into the phil collins era at some point get some more songs because there's just so many great ones
1: that's our list
0: that's our list so uh just to recap we've got turn it on again um that's all throwing it all away Follow You, Follow Me, Just a Job to Do, and Tonight, Tonight, Tonight. So stay tuned. We're going to be talking about the bonus song here, and then we're going to give our um, our final thoughts. So stay with us. Welcome back to the Good Music Podcast. We've been talking about Genesis on this episode, specifically on the Phil Collins era. We just talked about the six songs that are part of this episode, being uh, Turn It On Again, That's All, um, Throwing It All Away, Follow You, Follow Me, Just a Job to Do, and Tonight, Tonight, Tonight. So now we're going to talk about the bonus song. For those of you that don't know what that is, what I use the bonus song as is a chance to highlight a lesser known artist or uh, maybe a one hit wonder or an underground group that uh, does not have a lot of recognition. And so I always also try to make the bonus song to have some kind of connection to the main artist that the episode is about. So um, whether that be something that is a side project of the band or you know they're from the same region of the world or they um, had this' were in the same style at the same time period or maybe they were spiritual successors just kind of some kind of connection I, it's a little bit arbitrary but I just I figure out something. So the bonus song for this episode is Justin
1: all i need is a miracle by mike and the mechanics yes so what's the fun fact about this connection here
0: so the mike is mike rutherford of course so this was a side project that he did at the same time that genesis was going on um pretty much kind of seeing phil collins being able to juggle both genesis and a solo career He was just like well i'll have kind of this thing over here as well and so He, again, was the guitarist and bass player for that group. But he was not the singer. Because in the way he described it, it was just like, if you're going to write great music, you have a great voice. And I don't have a great voice. (laughs) Well said. So, um, actually, the name is escaping me on who the lead singer of Mike and the Mechanics is. But uh, the first album came out in 86, I believe. And actually ended up being bigger than what he thought it would be. Ended up becoming kind of a... I wouldn't say it was a big album or a smash success, but. It it, was
1: successful, though. It
0: was successful. Um, It didn't get Phil Collins' level successful, but it definitely exceeded expectations of what a side group would be. And the album is a really good album. It's just, it's a
1: great, solid pop record. And this song is just a great 80s song. Yeah. I mean, so much synth goodness, which, of course, I love. This and, is
0: and not dated sounding
1: synth. No, it was really fresh and exciting sounding, really purposeful. Um, even though there's a lot of it, I mean, it doesn't feel like it's just this overload.
0: Mm-hmm. Everything is is well measured and well balanced on this song.
1: And it's super catchy pop melody.
0: Mm-hmm. Which is um, does a really good job of hiding the sadness of the lyrics. Yeah. You know, it's just, it's about a guy that realizes he's been really crappy to his girl and he wants her to come back. It's kind of the opposite of throwing it all away. (laughs) The thing that always catches me off guard on this song is how they transition the verse to the chorus. Yes. Because there's a key change there. Yeah. And it all, no matter how many times I've listened to the song, it always kind of catches me off guard. And I go, oh Yeah this is a great transition. I forget almost every time I listen to it. And, Cause I keep thinking of where I want it to go. And then when it does the other thing, it's like a, oh yeah, this is good. This is better than what I would have done. And so that's kind of the thing that always makes me want to come back and listen to that song.
1: So Genesis, one of the greatest bands of the eighties. Yes. One of the most influential bands, in the 80s. Absolutely. And four of the most prominent members of Genesis all go on to have pretty successful solo careers. I mean, of course, Peter Gabriel and Phil Collins reached superstardom, super stardom,
0: but... Oh, yeah. My... Tyler
1: Banks and um, Weatherford do pretty well for themselves.
0: Tony Banks didn't...
1: Tony Banks.
0: Tony Banks didn't do quite well. He tried... Uh, I've actually I listened to one of his solo records once, and it is astonishingly bad. Um, he he got he actually did some pretty good work in like orchestral work. He did some orchestral music scoring and arranging in the two thousands, and they didn't get popular, but it's pretty good. Um, but he ex he actually didn't have a, a side band that. Um, did anything on the level that the other three did? So probably just the three: Peter Gabriel, Phil Collins, and Mike Rutherford. Because Mike and Mechanics is still going today. Yeah. They like released a new album like a year ago, and so that's kind of been where his focus has been lately. And of course, Peter Gabriel's still out there. We're gonna we'll do a Peter Gabriel episode at some point because he's someone that I'm actually listening to a lot right now, mainly because my son is into him right now and that my two and a half year old son is into him right now. And that's like as good of a thing as I could ever predict. Him right. Absolutely. Um, and then of course we'll do a Phil Collins solo career at some point because it was just, it was so. Got it. Big. And yeah, just, it just shows how good Genesis was, but then how you have all of these great parts and yet, Genesis was still able to be greater than the sum of its parts. Yeah. That you had all these people that were so skilled, yet they came together and they made something that didn't feel overcrowded. It didn't feel like you had all of these visionaries butting
1: heads. It was just, it worked so well. And at the core of it, this band, I mean, they were songwriters. Mm-hmm. I mean, incredible songwriters. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, just I always go back to an
0: every just about every episode I do great pop songwriters yeah. absolutely and just figuring out how to deliver it in a in an interesting way putting a little twist to the pop music formula
1: I know you're going to ask me what I thought overall about Genesis and I mean I really thoroughly enjoy listening to them just as much as I probably did it with Tears with Fears but I think the thing that I I said this earlier in the podcast, but the thing that I respect, I think, about Genesis the most is that when it got down to the three of them, and they started simplifying things, how they just managed to cover all their bases by being resourceful, they used so many new tools, they tried so many different things, and it helped to find their sound, Mm -hmm. and really kind of solidified them as like, Almost innovators of, I mean, of course with 80s drums, but just not even that, just they brought a fresh perspective even with like synths and everything else and that they you did know, there.
0: They were one of the, the, the pioneers of 80s pop. Yeah. Cause I mean, they were, they started writing 80s pop in the late seventies and were kind of, you know, really, I mean, who knows what Tears for Fears would have done without Genesis. For sure. You know, They just, they really were the first to, or one of the first to really figure out how to incorporate all this new technology that was coming in. Yeah. And they were right at the forefront
1: of it. And I think, you know, we've talked about um, a little bit just how, I mean, just all these band members for them, so talented. Just probably, I mean, musicianship wise, probably one of the most talented groups of individuals absolutely a long time yeah 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 and they they managed to always make it work Mm -hmm. and even then just i mean just what they could do i mean i think that's the thing about genesis that they always brought a level of polish that you know we said earlier like phil couldn't just like he would only be able to do one thing by himself but each of them just brought their own special thing to it
0: yeah it was all they were all necessary ingredients that they all needed each other and again, I say that to a certain extent because they did were able to flourish on their own, but there yeah. was just something extra magical that their so all their solo careers didn't have that when they brought it together, it worked.
1: And overall, just what a fascinating transformation for Genesis just from where they started folk, prog rock to pop. And...
0: Few bands have gone through as much change as Genesis has as far as where they started. Where they finished and how long of a time span it was. We've, we have the Beatles where they started in, and ended in dramatically different places, but it happened very quickly in comparison. Yeah. It took them about seven years to do that, where it took Genesis about 20.
1: Isn't that crazy?
0: And they were able to just continue to stay relevant.
1: And I know they didn't have as many lineup changes as, let's say, you know, like Fleetwood Mac, for example. Mm-hmm. But they had some pretty significant... Lineup changes.
0: It wasn't even the fact it was lineup changes as it was lineup disappearances. <laughs> it was like they had, from the second album, they had, they didn't have any new members join. Yeah. It was just they kept losing people. They were five, and then there was four, and then there was three, and it was just. But I think that also helped because they never, f- fans never felt like an outsider was coming in. Yeah. That the answer still came from within the core. Yeah. And so I think that had they ever added new—and here's here's the interesting thing, is that when they—when Phil Collins left in 97, they tried one more album with a new lead singer, and it tanked hard, hard. As in, like, they tried to do a tour from the album. They tried to do 20,000-seat stadiums, and they would sell less than 100 tickets. And they canceled the entire tour because of it. (laughs) Because no one was willing to come see them without Phil Collins. And it was just like, you know, it wasn't ever a problem before when they were losing members. But the fact when they started bringing in new outside members, that was the point where I was just like, no more. So there was just, there was something about that lineup they kept they kept getting rid of the excess and then just figured out what were the absolute essential yep. things that they needed.
1: So there's that. Jesus. There's that.
0: Yeah. So are you starting to see a little bit of the bigger picture now that we've had some more artists? Like I love that you brought up Nirvana and the Beatles. The more artists we go through, you're going to find everything so much. Everything goes back to the Beatles. Yep. Everything always goes back to the Beatles. So those of you who are listening that have not listened to our Beatles episode, please go back and listen to it. It's still... well, Actually, no. It's no longer our most least listened to episode. Um, ACDC is now our least listened to episode. Which you should listen to that one as well. But the Beatles, I think, should be one of our most listened to episodes. So please check that one out. And then next week. Oh, next week. we got a really good one. We're going to Stay a little bit in this time period of Love it. Um, late seventies, early eighties. We're gonna look at another one of the most important influencers of eighties music, and that's the Police. And so we're gonna we're gonna get a little bit more into New Wave and um, the importance that they played in that scene. So tune in for that next week. Um, Thank you so much, everyone, for listening to this episode. Remember, if you like what you've listened to, please hit the subscribe button, leave a comment, leave a review, share with your friends. Um, Make sure to check out the description um, in the episode to figure out how to find the songs that we talk about in every episode. And um, yeah, just uh, let us know what you would like to see in the future. Um, This is Lucas. This is Justin. Thank you so much for listening and keep on listening to good music.